Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. I'm speaking with the lead author of the article entitled, Creation of a Certification Requirement for Pharmacists in Direct Patient Care Roles. With me is Dr. David Hager, Pharmacy Manager, Department of Pharmacy, UW Health in Madison, Wisconsin. Dave, welcome to AJHP Voices. Well, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's start by um, having me ask you, uh, how did the pharmacy department at UW Health get started on the path of encouraging certification for pharmacists in direct patient care? Yeah, so we uh, had some of the first board certified pharmacists in the country, you know, working with us at UW Health. And so I feel like we recognized the value of board certification early. I think it picked up steam, though, about 2011 with PPMI, and we uh, did some retreats uh, with our pharmacists trying to work on our uh, strategic plan uh, at that time. And one of the things that staff put into that strategic plan was a, a goal to have all pharmacists credentialed and trained at the highest level within their areas of practice. And so uh, back in 2011 is really where things got started. And then in 2013, we started our Professional Advancement and Recognition Program, or PARP, which was a voluntary way of encouraging professional development for our pharmacists. And within that, board certification played a pretty key role in how you would advance within that program. And so we mm -hmm. also set a strategic vision in that time to have all pharmacists board certified by the end of 2015 who were in direct patient care roles. So we really had had a voluntary program of trying to expand that over that time and had really worked on trying to uh, encourage board certification through voluntary means and supporting our staff at that time. Right. Well, you referred to uh, PPMI, that's ASHP's uh, pharmacy practice model and initiative that clearly was uh, had some influence in, in how you got started, uh, as I understand it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's something that we really looked at as we more engaged with an integrated practice model and advanced the roles of our pharmacists that we knew that credentialing was going to play a key role in uh, making sure we were able to advance our practice model at UW Health. Well, what led you then to change the program from a voluntary initiative to a mandatory requirement? Yeah, so in the spring of 2015, actually our ambulatory pharmacy leader uh, came to our larger department manager's meeting and was describing uh, what he was seeing was in contracts for our growing specialty pharmacy business as well as our growing oncology retail business. Those contracts were containing more and more language that was requiring certification in order to get some of those payer contracts. They wanted to make sure that the pharmacists who are involved in the clinical care of, of those patients had the highest level of training before they were going to allow us to dispense those high-risk, high-cost drugs to patients. And so he came to basically inform uh, the rest of the leadership team that you know, he was really going to work down the path of requiring certification for this smaller group of clinical pharmacists within our department. 
So really a conversation kind of came out of that, which was, is it really reasonable for us as a department to say this small group of 16 pharmacists or, or whatever the exact number was that work in these particular practice areas because of contracting or the reasons we're going to require them to pursue certification, but the rest of the pharmacists that we have working within UW Health that take care of patients every day don't have to be certified. And at the same time, it just didn't seem to jive with our vision statement, which was really to be the nation's leader in pharmacy. If we're going to be the nation's leaders, why are we going to wait for payers to require us to have our pharmacists be certified when our vision, all the way back to 2011, was to have all of our pharmacists in direct patient care roles be certified? So that really right. started a whole process of reexamining that whole voluntary program and was the impetus to start looking at transitioning to a mandatory requirement. Very interesting. Well, how do you define direct patient care for the purposes of this program? Yeah, so we look at a lot of different definitions, and this is something that I think you could really get mired in. And, and we ended up settling on somebody else's work, which is really the Board of Pharmacy Specialties, has a great definition that's fairly broad for direct patient care. And so we decided to use their definition, uh, which talks about collecting and interpreting patient data, anybody who's verifying orders or prescriptions, monitoring medication outcomes, doing any patient education. And then it's even broader than some of those things that I think we think of right away with direct patient care and included things like interpreting and evaluating the literature and then improving uh, pharmacotherapy for populations of patients or improving public health. So we thought that definition was more inclusive and of the things that I think our leadership team saw as direct patient care and uh, we decided to move in that direction. So uh, is there a percentage time commitment uh, for the pharmacist to be engaged in these types of activities to, to meet the definition? How does that work? Yeah, so we decided to head in the direction if you spend 50% of your FTE or uh, your full-time equivalent or more in those types of activities that you are included in the requirement. So okay. if you weren't a full FTE, that needed to be prorated based on that. We kind of dug down a little bit deeper then for staff to make it a little bit more clear. So we said, basically, you were included if you work inpatient in any faculty if you uh, and in any facility. If you're on the consult service, if you're in the operating room, infusion center, if you're overnights but doing clinical work, ambulatory settings, clinic retail, drug policy, all of that would be more than 50% of your time. Then excluded okay. people really were people in investigational drugs within our PBM or a pharmacy benefit manager within information technology and then our operations pharmacists. But we right. heavily encourage them to continue to uh, pursue board certification, uh, but we didn't require it with this change. Well, given what you've just said then, Dave, what proportion of the department's pharmacist staff is covered by the mandatory requirement? Out of our 174 pharmacists, this requirement covers 137 of them, uh, or about 78% of our staff. Well, briefly, what are the key operational facets of the mandatory certification program? Some of the key things that we uh, established was uh, in 2015 was that uh, by the end of 2016, all oncology and specialty uh, pharmacists would need to be uh, certified and all other pharmacists in direct patient care roles would be required uh, by the end of 2018. 
we approved all certifications, including all current and future uh, Board of Pharmacy Specialty Certifications, or BPS certifications. Uh, we decided to include, after some debate, uh, certified specialty pharmacists and certified anticoagulation uh, providers because of the uniqueness of those practice areas, the sort of lack of a BPS equivalent, and uh, their overall uh, maintenance requirements were fairly high, uh, the rigor of those uh, certifications we deemed as high, and those were also currently being recognized by payers, and so we decided to include those within uh, the policy as well. We would probably re-examine uh, those if BPS were to release similar credentials, but at this time, uh, those are included within the policy. Uh, we also um, included uh, payment, so we worked with our HR and compensation groups to include coverage for the initial certification exam for all pharmacists and then to $300 per year in the maintenance costs associated with certification. The last part was just to provide meeting days in compensation, so we provide uh, pharmacists with one uh, eight-hour day uh, in compensation for their time for taking the examination. It may not be on the exact exam date if it falls on weekends or other things, but uh, we wanted to provide some time back. Sure. Dave, I'm curious, uh, within UW Health, were there any special approvals external to the pharmacy department that were required for this program? It was important for us to include human resources really early in this uh, program's development. They wanted to certainly be involved if we were going to make decisions about changing minimum qualifications for the type of pharmacist that we were going to be hiring, as well as what would happen to existing pharmacists who didn't follow the policy. So human resources was a key collaborator as we rolled out this policy. And that looped in compensation and some others because when you're talking about payment and reimbursement for those things, when it becomes a requirement for the job to have certification, we found that compensation and other groups within UW Health were more willing to engage in those co uh, conversations about having UW Health support that uh, certification requirement. Dave, would it be accurate to characterize your program as a formal privileging process for patient care pharmacists? You know, Bill, I would argue probably not. Uh, you know, this program or policy establishes a baseline competency for all of our pharmacists. When I think about credentialing, to me that implies that we review the ability of our pharmacists to directly care for patients, either through chart review or interviews or other um, procedures, uh, really examining whether or not our pharmacists can take care of patients in the real world, and this doesn't do that. Our goal, in fact, was to not create tiers uh, between our different pharmacists with different sets of privileges, which is another thing I would think of if this were a formal uh, process. And so uh, I think our goal overall was really to raise the level of pharmacy practice for all of our pharmacists by ensuring base competency. You've alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious, in planning this program, were the considerations any different beyond what you've already said for pharmacists in ambulatory care versus inpatient care? Our goal has always been as a department to raise the level of all pharmacists practice regardless of practice site. One of the things we talk a lot about is when I look at some of my colleagues who may be a, a nephrologist as a physician, we don't hire 
nephrologist to practice inpatient nephrology and then hire a different group of, of nephrologists to practice in the clinic. Those physicians move freely between sites of care because the kidney is the kidney no matter where they need to take care of it. And so our thought was more no, that, the, that we need to make sure that the uh, requirements are the similar across practice sites. There were some key differences in how it was rolled out. One of those was really how do we get uh, study groups and other support to those pharmacists practicing in those various settings. In the inpatient side, it's a little bit easier, right? Everybody's in the hospital. We can get them all in a conference room and do some study groups. When you're in multiple clinics or retail pharmacies spread throughout the county, those sorts of things don't become as practical. And so really the, the major difference was not in the requirement, but was how we got staff ready to meet that requirement. Okay. Mm-hmm. Dave, were external accreditation requirements for your institutions, such as standards uh, of the Joint Commission, or risk management considerations, factors in establishing this program? You know, we knew that many of our delegation protocols that gave pharmacists prescribing authority uh, were becoming increasingly complex. And, uh, you know, we have really tried to push the envelope in some areas. I think of right away some of the work that we've done with nutrition support where our nutrition support pharmacists have been basically fully delegated the ability to initiate parenteral or enteral nutrition and modify all the orders and labs surrounding that care. Or I think about our transplant pharmacists where they have delegated authority to modify immunosuppression, hypertension drugs, hyperlipidemia drugs, all of those types of therapies. When you think about the complexity of those types of protocols. We were increasingly getting pushback from uh, the medical board and pharmacy and therapeutics committee that, you know, we need to make sure our pharmacists are competent to do these sorts of complex modifications to patient drug regimens. How can you establish that a pharmacist is competent to do those things? I think our historical model had been, well, we're going to allow pharmacists to modify a single drug based on its pharmacokinetics or some other parameter. And so then the training or competency requirements seemed equivalent to that smaller scope of practice. So you have to do a training for an hour or two and take a, an exam and prove that you can score a certain number on it or whatever. As we kind of move forward, I think, as a profession and those delegation protocols become more complex, uh, because the patients we deal with as pharmacists are the most complex. Uh, we need to make sure our level of competency uh, is the same to minimize our risk and to make it uh, acceptable to the rest of the organization. Well, you mentioned uh, questions that had uh, begun to come up from the medical staff. I'm curious, is there anything else you might want to say about how the program has affected uh, the relationship of patient care pharmacists with physicians and, and nurse practitioners? You know, I think that is always a difficult thing to, to measure uh, what types of changes in relationships have taken um, place. I do know that it has been easier to get some of those higher level delegation protocols I just mentioned through P&T and to get acceptance from our physician colleagues that those types of delegated authority um, are sensible for our highly uh, trained and credentialed staff. I also can say, you know, as uh, our health system continues to evolve and we're meeting with new system leaders and, and new physician leaders and new physician roles, I think one of the things we recognized early as a, a force at play to pursue board certification was the rise of physician CEOs across the country and including at UW Health. 
know, in my opinion, certification is something that physicians really connect with. They understand the process of certification. That's something that they're quite familiar with. And so mm -hmm. when we're meeting with those new leaders, like we met a couple months ago with the new um, physician medical director over ambulatory care, and you're able to say to them, you know, all of our staff are board certified. That's something that I think really resonated with him and, and gave him quickly the idea that you know this is a different level of staff than he may have seen in other places and that this is a highly competent staff that can help him advance the care of patients within uh, his particular setting. Yeah, it sounds like a real important point. I'm curious, does this certification program relate in any way to requirements or expectations for preceptors involved in accredited residency training? Yeah, so within our you know, integrated practice model, one of the things that we uh, use is really a team-based preceptor model. So our, our residents may not have the same preceptor day-to-day. -day. They're really tied to that rotation in that patient care team. So uh, one of the advantages to establishing a requirement for board certification is that Board certification is one of the more easier, more tangible ways that you can show to ASHP or to a surveyor, you know, our staff are credentialed, they're experts within this area of practice and they have certification to support it. And so within a team preceptor model, making sure all the pharmacists that are going to be around that resident have that credential makes that process far easier uh, when it comes to residency accreditation. Well, Dave, your article discusses the process of informing your staff about plans for the certification requirement and building support for those plans. What were the key takeaways from uh, your experience with this process? We did it in a couple steps that ended up being fairly effective. I think the first was we used an FAQ or a frequently asked questions document throughout the creation of this process. So you know, our leadership team had lots of questions about where this was going from big picture questions of why are we doing this to very specific questions. What are we going to do if somebody fails once or twice or what do we do if somebody is in the end of their career and this is not something that aligns with where they're headed. And so we gathered all of those sort of frequently asked questions and uh, got a small group together to craft responses so that we as a leadership team could be on the same page with how we were going to approach those types of questions. I think the second thing we did that was a, was a good idea was that we held a, an evening forum, kind of a town hall uh, sort of approach. This was a required evening event for all pharmacists. We uh, tried to engage residents and others to help kind of cover a, a majority of the evening shifts. We actually helped try to provide daycare for those with families. We brought them food uh, and fed them all. We had some social time. And then uh, we delivered our presentation. We did it in a combined way. So I, I did half. The other half was done by our ambulatory clinical leader uh, to make sure that this didn't look like inpatient was forcing this on all or ambulatory was pushing this. And so I think we had a good combined uh, message there. And, and we really talked about many of the things I've talked about so far, how this doesn't align with our vision. Uh, what the major forces are in healthcare that drove us to do this requirement. And then we stood uh, in front of uh, that group and we took questions. And we took questions yeah. for probably a solid half hour. And we put all that into a revised FAQ and, and sent it out uh, afterwards along with the policy and the presentation. 
and that seemed to be fairly effective. I think requiring it, taking attendance, making sure people were there and heard the message first from uh, leadership made a big difference instead of letting the rumors kind of take off as sometimes can happen when you're establishing this type of policy. How has this program affected uh, the pharmacy department's ability to hire clinical specialists? I think overall it's improved our ability to hire pharmacists. When I speak to new graduates of residency training programs, a vast majority of them want to become certified. I think they get through residency training, uh, that that is an important next step in their careers. And they also then see kind of two things. One is that our organization is committed to supporting staff within their certification. So they're going to get their initial exam covered, and we're invested enough to say we're going to cover $300 a year of your maintenance fees. I think sends a very clear message to applicants that we're committed to them in the long term to maintaining their competence. And I think they also appreciate that they know that they're going to be working alongside people who have that same level of training and certification, uh, which I think is always reassuring when you're entering a, a, a new job. Well, Dave, overall, what has been the most challenging facet of the certification requirement from the perspective of pharmacy department leadership? The areas that we got pushback from staff the first was really on the financial piece. Like, this is a pretty high cost. What are we going to do to help with that? And I think we were able to address that fairly clearly over time. And then the second one that I didn't quite expect, and in retrospect, I, I wish we would have caught earlier, which was that for many pharmacists, they had self-doubt about their ability to pass the certification, that they could take these exams again. You know, many of our pharmacists have 10 or more years of experience, and they haven't taken tests in many years. I think there was a lot of nervousness about that piece. You know, we have found overwhelmingly that our pharmacists would do very well within the board certification process. Trying to get over, I think a lot of initial hesitations by staff were lack of confidence that they would be able to pass these exams. And I would, I would tell other pharmacy leaders, one bit of advice would be to not, to not underestimate that many of the opposition you might encounter is because of lack of confidence that they're going to pass the exam and really to engage staff and encouraging them that they will pass and that you will help get them there. Are uh, pharmacy practice leaders at UW Health considering some type of formal competency assurance process for pharmacists who are not engaged in direct patient care? Certainly for our operations pharmacists, those that were excluded by this policy, verifying their tr level of training and competence and performing those uh, skills is certainly important and something that we do. I would say, you know, we're really waiting for BPS and others to establish certifications in non-direct patient care veins. I think that that's coming. One of the things that we have seen emerging lately is um, there's a recent certification that has been uh, created for clinical research professionals. That may help us address some of those pharmacists working within our pharmaceutical research center. And I think the trend will be more of those types of certifications will be available in the future. And I think our, we're in a wait and see mode. We'd, we would certainly require those types of certifications in the future if they became available. Well, Dave, as we conclude our conversation here, what advice do you have for other pharmacy departments that are contemplating a program for certifying patient care pharmacists? So I think I have about five suggestions. The first is uh, set clear standards for who is included in the policy, who is excluded from the requirement, 
and why those decisions were made and make sure that the entire leadership team can speak to who's in and who's out and why. I would say have an established history of supporting board certification and study groups or other means to support staff who pursue it. I think it would be, it would have been much more difficult for us to establish this requirement if staff hadn't heard from our leadership team that certification was important until 2015 and then we said, hey, by 2018, get certified. So I think, you know, spending some time talking to staff early, encouraging voluntary certification was helpful to our momentum to getting this accomplished. Mm -hmm. I would say third, if you're a leader considering this, think about the advantages that this will have when your pharmacists replace continuing education credit that they can find for free online or in a magazine uh, that may or may not directly tie to their practice or may or may not be all that rigorous with BPS or uh, credit that is highly rigorous, it's made from their peers, it's within their pr uh, practice areas. Think about how that's going to transform your staff's ability to continue to learn throughout the year, but then think about how that's going to impact your staff professional development programming. Uh, one of the things that we've seen is, you know, one of the carrots in the past to getting people to come to the Pharmacy Grand Round Seminar was the CE credit associated with it for licensure. All of a sudden, if they have to get BPS credit, that isn't a carrot any longer. So it's going to change the rest of your professional development programming for your department if you go down this path. I think four would be to engage human resources early. Write it into the minimum qualifications. I think that's going to help you with your arguments to support uh, compensation. I would also encourage leaders to draw parallels and to figure out what your organization is doing to support the certification for other types of professionals like the advanced practice providers within your organizations, the PAs, NPs, that group. And finally, I, I think the forum was an effective tool. So uh, making an announcement with all staff all at once and getting them in a required forum to do that so that they could hear clearly from leadership one message, I think made it easier for us to, to get this done. So that would be my advice. I think it was well worth it. We are excited uh, to see where this will take our department. Mm -hmm. Well, Dave, uh, thank you very much for taking time to have this conversation with me, and my congratulations to you and uh, the other pharmacy practice leaders at UW Health for really a remarkably innovative program. Well done. Thanks, Bill. This is William Zelmer with AJHB Voices. I've been speaking with Dr. David Hager, Pharmacy Manager, Department of Pharmacy, UW Health, Madison, Wisconsin. Dr. Hager is the lead author of the article entitled, Creation of a Certification Requirement for Pharmacists in Direct Patient Care Roles. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.